0: I absolutely loved her honesty, because just a few moments ago, um, she came forward and she said, like, I couldn't sing that part of the song. I just couldn't do it. I said, I understand. She said, well, you know, the problem is I love that song. Like, I love everything about that song, and I just couldn't sing it. I said, I, I, I get it. Like After what happened to you this week, I totally understand. And she thought I was the one that didn't get it. And maybe we both don't fully understand it, but I don't know about you, that, that song that we just sang, and, and particularly the chorus, It Is Well, With My Soul, you know, is, is a, it's a song of defeat in a way. It's a song that that describes, and especially if you know the kind of the the, the background behind the original song, it's a song that is um, full of angst and lament and sadness and pain. And all those words just uh, smell a lot like defeat, don't they? And it's a song of uh, victorious Defeat. It's a song that looks at life and says, in, in spite of everything that I see and in spite of everything, even that I know to be true in the scriptures, um, my circumstances right now, as painful and as difficult as they are, uh, there really is something else that is keeping me going. I get it. And so uh, th- this, is, this is kind of a new thought for me. Um, I just thought during second service like I had to sing it for her. And that's true. That's important some days. Some days when someone says, I just can't sing that, I think it's important for you to come alongside and say, okay, and I will sing it for you today. That's what our text is like today. Our text is Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 27, and uh, it, it, it smells like defeat. It is the death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Not a popular idea today. Um, Ryan Vincent's fault, but our staff uh, kind of got into a, into a nice Twitter fight with Gunger. <laughs> the Christian artist, over this issue of the death of Jesus Christ because he wanted us to think of happier thoughts. And I don't think he's crazy. I think he's wrong. But I get it. There's got to be a better thing for us to celebrate, right, than the death of our Savior. Tell me there's got to be something better. Well, yeah, his resurrection. Okay, but you cannot have, hear me, you cannot have a resurrection without, without his death. And so today, what we are doing is we are singing. We are now going to read about a victorious defeat. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. They, They took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and then led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. Over his head, they they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And, And those who passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the Centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, "Truly, this was the Son of God." There were also many women there looking on from a distance, who'd followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary, the, or sorry, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee incredible text of victorious defeat. And I, I can understand why the Apostle Paul has to say, it's not going to appear on the screen, but there is a, a text I keep getting drawn back to from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And in that text, the Apostle Paul says, and in the verses following, he says something like this. That the cross of Jesus Christ is is a dividing rod. Basically what it does is to those who are dying, to those who don't want to believe in what Jesus Christ has done for them, it's just foolish. It's just silly. At best, Jesus is one of those sympathetic losers. But for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The the cross has this amazing ability to take people and to divide them. And and how we look at the cross is probably one of the, the best ways to help us understand how we do and how we should look at God. I love to think. I love to be reasonable. It it, it drives my wife crazy sometimes, but I I love to think through things. And and, and will you think through this one thing with me? Can you kill God? Like, could you kill him? I, I think if I were to live back then and I were to gather with some people and we were to throw up that question, is it possible for us to kill God? To me, the most logical answer would be no. Like, how can you kill him? Like, how could you kill the one who made all life? How could you kill the one who is all-powerful? Like, what are you going to do that somehow you could control him and kill him? He who raises the dead, how could you kill him? And I I just have to believe that at some level, the crowds and the religious leaders were, were thinking something like that. I mean, you capture Jesus. And then you try him, and and at best, he's silent. A few words here and there, just standing up for the true identity of who he is, But, but for the most part, he just sits there and takes it. God wouldn't take it. I mean, wouldn't you think that God would defend himself? Wouldn't you? I would. And by the way, this Jesus from Nazareth, by the way, The the one who looked incredibly human, okay, even if he is God, I I know what we can do to prove it one way or the other. We we can try to kill him. And if we kill him, it proves what? Doesn't it? Doesn't it prove that he is not God? Can you see their thinking? It just proves it. And, And the more that they watch And the more that they reflect on the amazing possibility that how how can he, the one right there in the middle, the one that is um, tortured, the one that allows us to spit him on, do you think you could spit on God? Do you think you could wag your head at God and mock God? Do you think you could do that? You don't think he'd do something? I I think he'd do something. This text is, is, is a a dividing rod. It forces us to come to grips with some of the deepest realities of who God is and his plan, you know, I'd say for the world, but for you. Like his plan of redemption for you, for us. The gospel writers don't line up on every story about Jesus. It seems like intentionally they don't. John, most likely, has Matthew, Mark, and Luke before him, and he doesn't just retell the story. No, he decides, I want to tell that story about Lazarus. They missed that one, and they totally missed the very first miracle, and so John's the only one that records that. John's the one that records the Sermon on the Bread of Life. Only John records it. There are so many specific instances, and then it gets to the end, and John goes, yeah, well, this one I've got to include. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of the only stories that is found in all four Gospels But all of them come together, I would argue, and they unite around this, that Jesus was both God and man, and he died. And so three things I want to, three questions that I really want to ask of this text that will force me to be honest about the one in the middle, about Jesus, the one who claimed to be God, and the one who died. How does that fit together? And if it does... Maybe it demands more of me, all of me, than I realize. Three questions. First question is this. They're asking it. Is Jesus king of the Jews? Well, you could go back, actually, to the very beginning of Matthew's gospel and see that he is. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew goes down and he describes very specifically, this is the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus. And he goes back and he points out that Jesus, the one who was born of Mary and Joseph, this Jesus, is actually related to King David. He's a king. In chapter 2, turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You will actually see that it's not just a genealogy that does it, but there are some pretty miraculous events that happen around the birth of Jesus Christ to demonstrate that he's not just a normal person, something different about him. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we see these wise men coming from the east. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, most likely Herod the great, the one, by the way, who was really, really nervous about anyone trying to take away his throne, Not, not just Jesus, but there is a record of Herod being absolutely horrific to a number of people who would dare threaten him as king. Because that's what kings do, right? Kings, kings not only have a right to the throne, but a right to protect the throne. And man, i got to exert my power and my force. Why? To claim the throne and to hold on to the power of the throne. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They're asking the king. For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And Herod becomes greatly afraid. And Herod sends them on a mission to find him. And when Herod finds out that they went and worshipped him but then hid that truth, Herod did everything he could to kill the king. See, all the way through Matthew's gospel, he seems to want to underline this very powerful idea that Jesus Christ, the one who preached about having a kingdom and the one who talked about having power and authority, the one who claimed to be the Son of God and able to forgive sins, he was in fact a king. And it was one of those things where you almost needed him to say it because you couldn't tell by looking at him. Like, where's your throne? Where are all your servants? Where are all those people you get to lord it over? Jesus made it very clear on more than one occasion. You and I don't see kingdom the same way. You and I don't, don't see being a king the same way. Now I begin to realize why the cross is so troublesome to us. The cross becomes so troublesome to us because every time we think of king, we think of power, and every time we think of power and authority, it, it sends us in the wrong direction. I want to give you a great date in human history, 313 A.D. Constantine was emperor. His mother converted to Christianity, and she begged Constantine to, to go easy on the Christian people. They had been persecuted time and time and time again in in the Roman Empire, and and yet, think about this, under persecution, the the Christian people began to grow. It's like like a fire that's out of control, and you think you can stop it by trying to stomp it, and it just spreads even further. Christianity is growing all across the Roman Empire, and in 313, in what is known as the Edict of Milan, we don't have it written down, but we do know in that year, Constantine declared Christianity as a as a, a, a legal religion. Basically, it was, a, it was an edict for religious tolerance. Yay! Like, that's what we needed. I mean, we did really, really well under persecution, but now, now that somehow um, we're free to speak and, and free to act and free to worship, now that's gonna really, now we are about to take off. That's how we think, isn't it? It's how we think. I think if there's an an important lesson for us living in 2017 in America is that we need to stop and be very careful in believing that the way that God works and the way that the kingdom works and the way that, that God is made famous and is known is 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 by 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 finding the right people and by making sure that they have positions of power, and if, if the right people have positions of power, and then we can begin to exert our influence, many scholars would argue that the edict of Milan probably did more to hurt the church than to help it. They just it was so hard to see because don't we want religious tolerance? I do like don't we want instead of being chased to be the one who's in power isn't that better for us and and somehow this text I'm not going to read it again but I want you to just kind of think about it in your mind's eye the one in the middle is there any power in that Can the one in the middle really be king of the Jews if we kill him? Matthew's answer is yes. But then explain to me this. Question number two. Then why didn't Jesus save himself? I mean, all the crowd is staring around him and they're saying, save yourself. If you save yourself, then we'll we'll, we'll believe in you. Like if, if God rescues you, then we'll believe you. Why didn't Jesus go, okay, I'm, here I am. <gasps> Everything, would be such an easier way, wouldn't it? That's how I think, by the way. It's interesting that the statement that we hear in Matthew chapter 27 is repeated, this statement is like, if you are the son of God, then, sounds like a debate between a Christian and an atheist. If you are alive, God, if you do exist God, then come down and demonstrate who you are. told you it's very interesting that the statement if you are the son of God the first time we hear it in Matthew's gospel you know where it is Matthew 4 Jesus is being tempted in the desert three times the devil is speaking to him twice he says to him if you are the son of God if you are the son of God challenging his assertion that he was in fact God I find myself more and more kind of, I guess, now I can understand why Jesus and Peter have that conversation and Peter wants to undo the, the possibility that Jesus would die. His response was what? Get behind me, Satan, if you are the son of God. I mean, I mean what the Jews are doing is they're looking for a sign. If you go back, you actually see this actually is a repeated theme throughout the gospel. Matthew chapter 12, look at verses 38 through 40. This is a great lesson because let's be honest, I would be shocked if there was anyone in this room that hasn't wanted somehow God to do something incredible. Maybe because of a circumstance that you're in. Maybe just because you really do desire to have a deeper faith, a stronger faith, and a sign would bring that to you, wouldn't it? It would deliver that to you. If somehow I could see with my own eyes, if I could somehow experience the reality of God, then everything would be different. I I would be able to resist temptation. I would be able to be more bold in my faith. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and through 40. This is a great reminder for those of us. I am one of those sign seekers Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus saying, by the way, chapters eight and nine, particularly of Matthew's gospel, him doing signs all over the place. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And Jesus says, you know, I'm so glad you're seekers. You know what I love? I love people seeking. I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're seeking me. No, he doesn't say that at all. You know what he says to them? Verse 39, this one hits me hard. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Ouch, I thought I was a seeker. (laughs) Yeah, but you're a wicked seeker, is what Jesus says. You're an evil and adulterous seeker. Most likely because what you and I are is incredibly selective in what we will receive from God as proof that He is. It's It's still us believing in God on our terms and not His. Which, which again reminds me, who's God in this relationship? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Here's a sign. I'll die. Show you. Think about that. The sign that Jesus offers in Matthew chapter 12 is his death. I don't like that sign. Like, I really don't. Like, that's not a sign that I want. That's not a sign that I will respect or appreciate. I I love victory. I love winning. I don't want Okay, I know you say victorious defeat. I love the victorious part. It's the defeat part. I just don't really enjoy at all. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Here's a sign. I'll die for you. So why didn't Jesus save himself? Well, one of the reasons why is because even if he did, they wouldn't believe him. Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 16 says this. Not only is it wicked to ask for a sign, it's foolish if you believe a sign would change your life. I have told myself that a million times because I keep pursuing them. I'd love to see one and I am reminded of this verse so often. Luke chapter 16, it's a famous story of the rich man and Lazarus. There's a rich man, we don't know his name, Lazarus, we know his name, and Lazarus is poor and they both die. And Lazarus goes to be with with God, or at least in paradise with Abraham, Father Abraham. And the rich man goes to be tormented in hell. It's a parable. Jesus says in verse 27, kind of speaking for both of them, he said, this is the rich man who's looking over across this huge chasm, and he he sees Lazarus and Abraham, and he calls out, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, still thinking like he'd order him around, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that that he might warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Words of Jesus, speaking for Abraham, but Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the rich man argues, no, 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 Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If they just see a sign, they will repent. And again, Abraham, words of Jesus speaking. And he said to them, if they do not hear, if they do not, that word means actually to obey or to listen to, to heed, to follow. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See, they're standing at the foot of the cross. They're mocking him. They don't think he's gonna come down. If he dies, it's proof that they're right and he's wrong. So why doesn't Jesus save himself? For one, is because even if he came off that cross, nobody would believe. We are so um, bent on not God's way, We sang in that that song, right? Your way, your way, not my way. It's interesting, when it comes to faith, we still want to have it our way. If God would just, then I would. God, if you will, then I will. God, if you would just demonstrate, then I will. Those statements have been uttered by probably everybody in this room. And they fundamentally, fundamentally miss the point of who God is, of who you are, and the amazing difference between the two of us, meaning us and God. You and I, really alike. Us and God, crazy gap. The one in the middle, bridging the distance. In a way that you and I could have never fully understood or appreciated, no matter what we say, There is a famous statement found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. The angel is speaking to Joseph, who by all accounts, we, we believe that Joseph is dead by the time Jesus dies. But Joseph, if you remember, is getting ready to leave Mary and divorce her quietly. And the angel goes to Joseph, and the angel says something very, very powerful. He says this, she will bear a son, and you will give him the name, I love it in the, I love it in the Jewish Yeshua. Yeshua. Meaning Yahweh saves. You will give him the name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people. The one who refused to save himself did not save himself because he had a mission and a plan and a purpose that was not about pleasing the crowds around him. It was not exerting his own power and his own influence. He had been denying that from the very beginning. Whether it is Satan in the desert, whether it is Peter after the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is on a mission to save the world for the glory of God the Father and nothing would distract him from that. He would save his people. And I love the last part of this text because so often you and I desire to be saved. Oh, God, if you could just rescue me from my, the terrible thing that I'm going, God, if you could just save me from, oh, because I'm going through this. Even the young lady this morning that I just I'm really have a hard time singing that song was describing a very difficult and a very overwhelming time that's happening in her life. God, rescue me. I did. Yeah, no, 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 not not from that. From what I'm going through right now. Anybody else do that? Kind of skip over these last three words from their sins. Thinking somehow, this is what I do. I just think somehow that my problems are different than they really are. And that my struggles are really different than what they are. The angel was right. God's plan was perfect and set in motion. And Jesus was faithful. And your taunting and my taunting, your challenges, my challenges, their challenges, none of them would distract him from the purpose that God gave him was to save his people and his church and Jim Johnson from my sins. See, that's why I need someone to come down and to help me see this, because I could never figure this out on my own. I just, I'm too easily impressed by really smart people. When I meet someone who's really, really smart, I just, I get intimidated by them, and and I just have a hard time disagreeing with someone who I know is smarter than me, because the smartest people in the room must get it right. I have the same problem with power. And I meet people that are really powerful and they're really in control and they seem so much more powerful than me, it just intimidates me. I just, I just feel like lesser than. And I think that's why I really want to be smart and powerful. And therefore, the cross, and, and bigger than that, the way of God will always elude me until I choose to surrender to it. Now do you see why the Apostle Paul said the cross is one of those things that is a stumbling block to the Jews because they want signs. And and to the Greeks, (laughs) who want wisdom and brilliance, to them it's, it's just a joke, it's foolishness. I totally get what he's saying there. So then what does? Third question: What does the death of Jesus then signify? What, is it, what does it mean to us? Like, is Gunger right? Like Is there a better way for us to understand and express? the power and the purpose of God? Is there there something that is more more beautiful? One of Gunger's arguments with us, as we were describing with him, um, our belief that the cross and the death of Jesus is so powerful and is so central to the Christian life. One of his complaints is is that, but it is so violent and it is just so, so messy and ugly and so much violence has come from that one violent act. Doesn't that sound smart? Sounds smart to me. Like, isn't is all violence terrible? And I, I, Whenever I begin to think like that and to reason like that, I begin to, to realize, I wonder if I have some more motives or some more reasons to, to try to get rid of or push to the side the cross of Jesus Christ. I think all of us know that one of the most difficult aspects of the, of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is that if he is willing to submit to that point, if he is willing to die to that point, and then he says follow me, then the way of the cross is also the way for me. And let's be honest, we all have a vested interest in finding a better way to explain God's love than dying like that. And yet we see the power of this profound truth That what God does in the world, what God does for us, what God does through Jesus on the cross is the greatest example of the power of God ever. And it's why I love it. And it's why I struggle with it. Because there's got to be a reason why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said we cannot lose this issue. We cannot lose this story. Why? Why? It's, Paul wants to talk about it all the time. Because left to ourselves, our thinking and our propensity for for fame and fortune and power is going to lead us in a wrong direction. And it is easier than you realize to end up being one of those standing around the cross saying, if you are the son of God, I just can't tell you the number of people that I have met That have a hard time believing there is a God because let me tell you what happened to me. You know, I have a hard time believing a God. Well, let me tell you what happened to me. Okay, are you ready for this? You want to know one of the craziest stories about God? Guess what happened to him? Think about this statement. I think we just, it it, it just, it doesn't, we don't think about it long enough. Can you kill God? Can you kill him? You want to know the answer to that question, amazingly enough, with some qualifications? The answer is yes. You can actually kill the Son of God. And please tell me your next thought is not what's for lunch. I had an opportunity just a couple of weeks ago to sit down with a Scott and I were talking to a young man that wanted to hear about the, the, the Christian faith. And so Scott and I began to talk about it. I can't remember who was speaking at the specific time we started talking about how, because we have to get to the cross, right? It's not God's this awesome God and he loves you and he really wants to help you with a better career choice and find a great wife for you and so you can have kids and buy an SUV. Tell me that's not God's plan for the world. And so we, we got to the cross pretty quickly, actually, and I don't remember, Scott, I don't remember if you were talking about it or I was talking about it. It just sounded bizarro. I've confessed to this before with you. To explain the way of God makes no sense in this world that loves power and prestige and wisdom. It's I wish the Bible would have said somewhere that the, that the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. <laughs> oh, wait, it does. Maybe we need to be a little more careful always talking about the great stories of the Bible where David beats Goliath and Daniel doesn't get eaten in the lion's den. and Not that they're not true. Not that we can't find value. Elijah wins at Mount Carmel. Wh- which one is the one that defines us, though? And everybody wants to be a Daniel. Everybody wants to be a David. Well, sure. How many of you want to be a Jesus? David, me too. So what does Jesus' death signify? I'll tell you one thing it signifies. It signifies that we could never figure out God's plan if he didn't reveal it to us. It means the next time I stand before God and say, God, if you're there, you, you gotta do this. I may be asking for something that I have no idea what I'm asking for. In light of his cosmic and eternal plan, Maybe it's better for me to just sit sometimes and just be quiet to trust that his way, which would never be my way, would never be my way, is still the right way and the best way for me. Now do you see why we need a text like this and not just another five-point series on our marriages? How to raise kids and finances. Now do you see why this message and this text fundamentally is, is what gathers us together? Because a lot, of, a lot of us have decided that we love Jesus and, and we want him to be, kind of be our life coach. And I'm really cool with that idea. And a lot of people right now are really wondering whether or not following Jesus is what they want, because it's way more fun to, and it's way cooler to, well, what did you sign up for? Well, I really signed up for a better way of life. Like, really, like, when I was told about this, I was told that I would have, like, peace and happiness, and, um, but did they tell you that would come through the death of God on the cross in Jesus of Nazareth? Well, kind of, I think they mentioned it. And you didn't know that that would also be like your story in your life? No, it was camp. I'm just kidding. Camp does that, okay? Camp tells the whole story. But are you listening? I'm asking you this question, very legitimate question. For those of you that say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ and I have peace with God, I want to ask you, what did you sign up for? And hear me, I I, I genuinely believe that a life in pursuit of Jesus Christ is the best life. But it looks a lot like that text. It looks a lot like this victorious defeat. I think a lot of people begin to wonder if they signed up for the right thing. I remember talking to some college students that said, "I'm, I'm rethinking, I don't know what I really signed up for. Because the more that I read the Bible, and the more that I, it's not dare to be a Daniel. It's do you dare to believe in the power of the cross? So, what what do you do when you kill God? That's pretty freaky, isn't it? Like at first, you're going, to, well, if we kill him, well then he couldn't be God. But what happens when you actually do kill him? What then? What happens when you realize, wow, like we just killed the Son of God? Like there's something of that that then like lingers on every single one of us. One of the options is to um, to try to come along like a great, brilliant, brilliant person, smarter than I will ever even dream of being. His name is Frederick Nietzsche. Jesus and Nietzsche on the same Sunday, isn't that fun? This is what Nietzsche says. Nietzsche, in two different books, describes um, what it is like to deal with the death of God. Now, Nietzsche, a German uh, philosopher, is describing the death of God meaning this. This is what he means by this, is that God is just an idea. It's it's a way, like Sigmund Freud would argue or others, it is a, a sociological or a psychological construct that you and I need to just make ourselves feel better so that we can get through life. Amazingly enough, far too many Christians believe that. And Nietzsche said, you don't need that. And so he developed something known as the death of God. He began to say, listen, you don't need that. You don't need need a fairy tale. You don't need to, to believe in these lies. And it scared him to death. He is writing this and he is tormented by this idea. So both in his book, The Gay Science, as well as Um, uh, Zarathustra he basically describes the pain that he is now going through and here's what he has said God is dead God remains dead and we have killed him how shall we comfort ourselves the murderers of all murderers what was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives and then notice how he goes for like a redemptive appeal who will wipe this blood off of us What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals or what religious things can we do? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to, and since there really is no God, shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed that they've killed God, is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods? Simply to appear worthy of it? See, what Nietzsche realized was that if, if, if I do this, if I, um, if we have, and we believe, he believed we had, they had done it, if we have killed God, like there is no, here's, here's what he believed, like truth is decided by the individual and there is no right and there is no wrong. Like, not like everybody will ever believe that craziness, but this is what he believed. And if everybody gets to create their own reality and to pursue their own happiness, then that would be the worst thing that could happen. Do you get the hopelessness? Nietzsche philosophically goes, I just killed God, and now I've gotta invent myself into becoming God just to deal with this pain. And the world on that idea and the ideas that surrounded it became the most horrific and wicked world in terms of the atrocities that were done to one another. Do you get the hopelessness of this? By the way, he felt it. He wasn't proud of this thought. This absolutely messed him up. But the beauty of the gospel is there is an answer to life other than Nietzsche. Here's the answer. Jesus is actually both Lord and Savior of the world. And how do I know? Because he died just like he said he would. And he was raised just like he said he would. So can I give you a counter? Let me give you a counter to Nietzsche. Interestingly enough, John 3.16. When Nietzsche seems too brilliant, John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him should not perish but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son, listen to this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's important. God did not send Jesus into this world to condemn the world but to save the world. In verse 18, and whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The answer to Nietzsche, the answer to the crucifixion of Jesus is what? Amazingly enough, the crucifixion of Jesus. And that's why we've waited to the end of this service to gather around the Lord's table. That is why I wanna end with this moment, reflectively. And so at this time, I wanna ask our servers to head to the back and um, we're gonna pray and, and, and then the, the elements are gonna be passed. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, take the bread and take the cup. Take the bread and take the cup. And we will, as strange as this might sound, but if you understand the power of God's plan and victorious defeat, what you're about to eat and drink will taste like hope and peace. Let's pray. So God, I thank you for even being an answer to Nietzsche's problem. God, I thank you for your power that comes in an unbeknownst way. I thank you for your plan that we could have never figured out on our own. And I thank you for your love that is greater than my deepest thought. Is greater than the best convention that me and the smartest people of this world could ever figure out. God, I thank you for never being distracted or tempted. I thank you for being faithful. It is in the crucified one that we pray and give you thanks. Amen.